Hi, Mary. How are you doing? I'm good, Dan. I'm good. So on the subject of podcasts, you sent me a very interesting article this week. Yeah, well, the one about Apple and Spotify and the battle over the future of podcasting. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, it's super interesting, isn't it? I'm obviously an issue very close to, to our hearts, but some really interesting announcements out last week, I think. Apple proposing a subscription model for some of their podcasts. Spotify talking about a little bit of collaboration with Facebook. We just, just reassure listeners at this point that we're not planning to go Apple premium subscription anytime soon. So this podcast <laughs> will continue being free with no ads. So this week is the start of a mini series within our season two of Investment Uncut, which is very, very exciting for us. I think, Dan, the longer I am in the investment industry and the the advisory industry, the more I realise that everyone just wants to know what everyone else is doing. The amount of times I sit in a trustee meeting or a a round table, they just want to know what other people are doing. So that's basically the premise of this mini series, effectively, isn't it? So we'll be going around different types of institutional investors. That's the word I always struggle to say. We'll be speaking to a key person in that area. We'll be sort of debriefing on what they tell us and working out what the key messages are for our listeners. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Joining us for a conversation about investing like an open DB scheme, delighted to be joined by Richard Williams, the Chief Investment Officer of Railpen. Richard, welcome. Hi, Dan. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Richard, why don't you give us a sense of your role at Railpen? I'm the CIO at Railpen. I've been for uh, just over three years now. I'm part of a 45-person an internal investment team that manage assets on behalf of the members of the Railways Pension Scheme. Those are mostly DB assets, but we have some defined contribution ones as well. I work very closely with an area called the fiduciary team. They do much of the work in determining to which multi-asset pool funds our clients invest their money. And then my team is responsible for the management of those pooled funds. Our assets are just over 30 billion and we allocate externally and manage internally. So it's very much a hybrid model. We have one investment team, but within that three areas, public markets, real assets and private markets, all of those are led by very experienced investors and team managers. Personally, nowadays, I tend only to get directly involved in the very major investment decisions Much of the time, sadly, I can't add a lot of value other than perhaps to facilitate an environment and a culture that allows really good people to do their best work and to generate great outcomes for our members. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to getting into some of those guiding principles with you today, Richard. But before we do, what's one thing that we should know about you that won't appear on your CV? My first job after university was at LCP. I began my career there as an actuarial student. My flatmate at the time worked for a different actuarial firm. He was very envious that I was paid £500 a year more than he was. So he always used to refer to LCP as Liam Clark and Paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) The fact I failed economics is perhaps slightly ironic 
given the future line of work that I'm in now, or that I've discovered, but I've never really embraced the rather orthodox and rigorous frameworks that economics applies to the real world. You've given us a nice little segue into the conversation there about investing. You, you talked just then about sort of ignoring or, or issuing some of the standard economic frameworks. So, so I'd love to get into that a little bit, but to maybe start that conversation, how would you set out some of your sort of guiding principles around investing? What's most important? What do you think gets overlooked and what gets overstated? There are very many ways to invest. Different things work for different people. And of course, different things work at different times. What I believe is really important is to identify what one's edge or competitive advantage is, if any, and then how to nurture, protect, and exploit that. And if you can't identify a genuine edge, then you can't expect to perform any better than average. In fact, net of cost, you can almost certainly expect to perform worse than average. An investment edge could be access to some unique bit of information, being able to process information faster than others. But of course, things like that and others are terribly difficult, much harder nowadays than perhaps they were when I began my investing career. When I look at our setup of RailPen, I genuinely believe we do have some edges which allow us to perform better than average. Perhaps most importantly is a long-term time horizon, and that allows us to hold high returning assets that are very volatile potentially in the short run, but much less so in the long run. And that is one of the benefits of being an open defined benefits scheme. Our governance is very robust, but also moves quite quickly. And that's one of the things that makes us an attractive go-to investor for many people. We've made ourselves a pretty attractive counterparty and therefore often we enjoy so exclusive so opportunities. We're prepared to be different. Um, I think our portfolio looks quite different to many others. For example, it's not a requirement of ours that a manager has a long track record. We'd be very happy to invest so early with a manager. And yes, sometimes as a result, we end up with egg in our face but overall, being prepared to be different does help generate superior returns. I referred earlier in my introduction to a hybrid model. You know, we're not beholden to using either internal managers or external managers. We can use the best of both. And then, you know, fortunately, over the years, we've put together you know, a really effective team. Now, all of those things allow good outcomes, but even with them, they're far from guaranteed. And then perhaps so what's perhaps overlooked a lot is just the importance of good luck when it comes to investing. I'm really interested in the first point you made then, Richard, about time. And it's something we hear again and again in terms of markets being a bit too sort of short-termist. Now, clearly, you as a, an open DB scheme investor, you have time. And so you are able to be patient with managers. But Many other investors that are investing with the same managers might find that their investors are less patient. So do you ever have interesting conversations with external managers where they're, they're almost expecting you to be more short-termist? And, and how does that conversation go? And how do you encourage the managers to look past that, that pressure? <laughs> yes, we do. Now, the, the majority of our assets are now managed internally. Perhaps so 60 or 70% are internal with the balance of the external 
when it comes to mandates where people are investing in public securities, I think they often do find it quite difficult to believe it when we say we want low turnover, we're not interested in benchmarks, tracking error is irrelevant, we just want you to own assets which are in the interests of our members over the long run. And you know, it often you know, does take a while to build up a, a level of trust which allows the manager to genuinely invest in the way that we would like them to rather than a way which you know, much of the industry encourages them to. But by and large, our experience has been pretty good because many managers would relish investing in that way. <laughs> They're frustrated by benchmark relative things as much as we are. Yeah, it's really interesting the different edges you reflected on because I suppose I I tend to hear the time horizon thing gets mentioned quite a lot, not always rightly and wrongly in some situations. But the second one you mentioned, making oneself a good counterparty or a good investor, I don't hear that get mentioned as often. It sounds like you've given that some thought as to one of one of the edges. Yes, that's really critical. So, for example, we delegate quite a lot of investment decision-making to the people on the ground. So they're, they're therefore able to make decisions without pushing it through various sort of committees meeting monthly or sort of quarterly. So we're usually able to be responsive. We are very keen not to mess people around to lead them up the garden path. So if we're not going to be interested in something we tell people very quickly, which is appreciated. And then secondly, if we do ask people to do lots of work with us, there's a pretty good chance we'll end up to consummating the marriage. We're good for our money. So if we enter a property transaction, for example, we don't have to then you know, raise mortgage finance. You know, we've got the money. And also being recognized as a genuine lease of long-term partner, but, you know, by many people were you know, viewed as an attractive person to do business with. So there's definitely been a few occasions where I feel that we have seen opportunities earlier than we otherwise would do. Or in some cases, we get to invest in things at lower prices than others would because our participation as a shareholder is highly valued. And I suppose when you're reflecting on those overriding principles, they're clearly based on on years of experience of what works particularly well and, and what perhaps has worked less well. So <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you able to give a sort of overview of the sorts of things that, I guess, some of your learnings over the years that have developed into these overriding principles? Well, what hasn't worked well? How, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with what Maybe some of the things that have worked well. Always a safe place to start. <laughs> yes. Well, let, let's try and fill up the time with those so we don't have to spend so much time talking about the less good things. I've been really fortunate to have had some great mentors. So early on in my career, these were senior people who really were sort of role models for me, both professionally and personally. And very often in a particular situation, I'll think, what is it that so-and-so would have done or said in this particular situation. Increasingly, I learn a lot from my colleagues, particularly my younger ones. <laughs> They've got a much better insight 
often than I do on the current zeitgeist. And when it comes to explaining business models of tech companies focused on millennials, they're much better able to do that than I can. So having really good mentors, senior, junior, and peers, I think has stood me in very good stead. I've learned that how important it is to be open-minded about what might happen in the future. Rarely things play out as expected. But what is important is to take some guidance from the past. And that's particularly important so given uncertainties today. And my dual interests in both investing and history will sit very well together. So talking of history, one of my first jobs as a fund manager was to manage Japanese government bonds. Now, this was in the early sort of mid-90s. And it, it was often a role you give to the junior person. The hours weren't very sociable. There was lots of administrative type trades you had to do to avoid paying withholding tax to the Japanese government. And of course, who wants to be involved in Japanese government bonds because their yields were so low and they didn't really move around very much. But actually, one of my learnings is how something which on the surface doesn't seem like a very glamorous thing to do can provide very useful insights. Of course, the one in Japan was the lesson that interest rates can stay very low for a very long period of time. And I remember, whatever it was, 30 years ago, talking to people about the potentials of Japanification of European markets and potentially Anglo-Saxon ones in the future. Lo and behold, that's turned out to be the case. So I think over the last 20 or 30 years, I've probably been slightly more constructive on fixed income as an asset class than the consensus. And of course, given the bull market, that's been very beneficial. But all good things come to an end. Am I constructive on fixed income from today's point? Starting point? Certainly not. It strikes me fixed income offers lots of risk, uh, but virtually no potential so for return. So that long-term trend, I think, is probably coming to an end. Relevant also to a long-term investor like Railpen, crises are often viewed as something to be fearful about. But of course, they can be a time of great opportunity. If you're solvent at a time of crisis and you can take a genuinely long-term perspective. It's a fantastic opportunity to acquire assets at very favorable prices. And then you asked about things that have not gone so well. Obviously, there are lots and lots of those. But perhaps on reflection, some of my regrets are linked to going against an initial gut reaction about either a person or a particular investment You can analyze theoretically as much as you want, but there's lots to be said for for gut instinct. And perhaps when I haven't gone with that in the past, on some occasions, I've come to regret it. That's an interesting one coming from an actuary, I guess. (laughs) A former actuary, Dan. I I must have missed that one in the actuarial exams where they rated gut instinct. But no, I mean, there's a serious point there, isn't there, that so much of the sort of received wisdom in the industry, including actuarial exams, but any form of exam really, focuses around analysis, things you can put into spreadsheets, things you can put into equations or, or write about. And there is something there in that kind of intangible, you know, yeah, it's called gut feeling, but actually it's a little bit deeper than that because it's about deeper sort of perceptions, isn't it? 
Yeah. And that, that, that perhaps links back to what I said about in my intro, about my sort of discomfort with economics as an academic discipline. It often tries to apply orthodoxy and sort of rigor to the world, which is inherently a very unstable environment. Mm. And I suppose thinking about the idea of gut feelings when you're making decisions, and I guess your experience over over your multiple years of investment decision making, and both for the better and for the worse, <laughs> what sort of I guess tips or or views or skills have you picked up over the years in practical and effective decision making? My inclination about groups making investment decisions is that those groups should be small, and ultimately. Individual accountability is really important. I've always preferred there to be one fund manager for a fund, for example, rather than co-fund managers. But groups are very often required in investing. Complexity requires a broad range of expertise, or perhaps governance requires a variety of stakeholders. I think it's now widely accepted that Diversity of all types is important. And certainly, when I think of the nasty sort of corporate spats or bad groupthink decisions I've been involved with, invariably the rooms have been full of people like me middle aged, white, sort of alpha type males. And I don't think the problem was the fact everyone was of the same age or the same gender, or the same ethnic background. The problem is they were all the same. So diversity for me is very important, but it's not easy chairing a diverse group of people. And I think sharing skills are really crucial when it comes to any kind of group, but perhaps particularly one that's trying to make good investment decisions. You need to bring out all the voices, you need to facilitate decision-making, ideally make it fun. And I must say, I've been very fortunate, really, to work on committees with some really good chairs. Our investment committees at RailPen, both at the executive level and the board level, are also really well chaired. And I think good chairing with diverse groups can result in much better investment decisions than would otherwise be the case. Yeah, love that as an observation. And it's funny you mentioned that because it's a topic we've actually touched on a couple of times before, this idea that we got to the point where many people recognize that diversity is a great thing. But day to day, diversity can look like more conflict, less certainty, oh, yeah. you know, less yeah. conviction in what you're doing. Whereas if a groupthink looks like, oh, great, we're all really confident, we're all agree, we all agree, we agree, life is great kind of thing. So resolving that is tough. And the role of the chair, although it's not something that really gets taught in universities and stuff, right? It is, it's just so important. Mm. Yeah, very much so. And what sort of framework are you using? Because you, you've talked about not being attached to benchmarks, very long-term focus. I get all that, but I guess one thing in favor of benchmarks, it gives you a very clear framework for giving people a mandate and for Laws, managing also. Yes. gives a sense of how you operate without that. What sort of mandate are you giving to your internal managers to guide them in a particular asset class? Well, most of our pooled funds have long-term targets linked to uh, UK inflation. It might be inflation, which we measure now with CPI, plus 2%, plus 4% in the case of 
private equity, so five or six percent. So that's that effectively is a sort of total return sort of target. And then to assess how we're investing, whether it's successful or not, we uh, develop some KPIs for each particular strategy. So an example might be, let's say you have a buy and maintain mandate. In a buy and maintain mandate, you would expect fairly low turnover. So a KPI might be linked to the amount of turnover so in the strategy. Um, so we try and assess the way funds are managed in order to deliver that absolute return sort of target. And we don't exclude ruthlessly the use of benchmarks, but we don't use the word benchmark. We use the word comparator. There's something of some interest to us over long periods of time. So I, for example, might see if MI on how our equity strategies compare with an equity index over the last three years, over the last five years, I couldn't begin to tell you how we've done versus an equity benchmark over the last month or two. Mm. And I think that terminology is really important in positioning what you're using data for, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Pure benchmarking makes things much easier. Having a suite of relevant KPIs is difficult. It's something we're working on at the moment. We haven't completed it. But I think a suite of KPIs together with this long-term approach, try not to be beholden to the benchmarks of tracking error sort of framework, again, ultimately should result in better long-term outcomes for our clients, which is what we're all motivated by. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of total return approach is, sort of, is a little bit familiar, I guess. And it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, because one issue I found with it, and again, maybe this is because it, that it's a, just a question of evaluating it too frequently. But what's happened in recent years is, is some of those sort of approaches have tended to sort of undershoot a little bit at the bottom end of some of those targets. And then you're sat looking at the, the results and you're saying, well, it's underperformed that sort of benchmark or KPI, whatever you call it. And then you get into a conversation about, well, it's not really a benchmark. You can't really look at it every quarter. Is it okay or not? And you can sort of, you can get a bit fuzzy, can't it? So I suppose it's all about connecting that long-term with the right periodicity of evaluating the performance in the short term. So have you got any reflections on that? Yeah, no, very much so. And to be able to do this well, you need experienced investment professionals who sort of been there, done that, understand a lot of these things. And you also need a very trusting and supportive board and trustee. And that's really, I think, what's allowed us to flourish at RealPen, the support we've had from those stakeholders, their desire for us to do the right thing rather than what's necessarily expected of us by a textbook has been fantastic. Um, so I, I'm, as, as well as the colleagues I'm surrounded with, I'm very grateful for the, the governance structure that, I, that I'm part of. Richard, pivoting slightly, and I guess looking, looking slightly sort of longer term and big picture, what sort of really big trends have you noticed in the industry in the time that you've been, been practicing in it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've seen lots of fads. Portable alpha, yeah. 130, 30 equity portfolios. You know, they, they were trends for a year or two, but then disappeared pretty quickly. 
what are the big trends? Well, I guess an obvious one is passive management, largely non-existent. 40 years ago, as now the go-to, probably quite rightly, for very many people. The explosion of the debt markets. Began my career as a fixed income fund manager in those days. You could buy some Japanese government bonds. You could buy government bonds in some other countries as well. Not that many. There was a corporate bond market in America. You could buy a mortgage-backed security or two. But things like emerging markets and high yield were terribly exotic. Very far from the mainstream. And of course, in those days, though, they did offer you there was some yield and compensation. That's completely different nowadays. Debt markets have exploded. You can now make debt investments in any maturity, any country, any underlying collateral, which, of course, contrasts quite a lot to public equities. And at the same time, the number of public equities has been going down, and that's been a, a strong trend. Offsetting that, of course, a little bit is the growth in in private equity, which is you know, perhaps slightly worrying because you know, it's not so easy for the likes of you or myself to invest in private companies. It really requires the existence of, well, DB pension schemes, for example, to be able to give individuals, you know, our members, access to those high growth opportunities. And that's certainly one of the motivations I have professionally is being able to do things which help our members get exposure to things they perhaps otherwise couldn't. And then perhaps one other trend is has been the, for good or bad, it's been innovation in financial engineering. That's been perhaps not as constant as the others. There's been accelerations and decelerations. And you know, sometimes that's been beneficial. Sometimes it's been very bad. Yeah, I was going to pick up, you talked about the massive explosion of debt securities and the financialization as well. I was wondering whether I picked up a slight tone of skepticism when you were mentioning those things, but you, but you were being a little <laughs> bit balanced there on the financial engineering points. I was going to try and get a yeah. sense of where are you on that? Are you sort of really in the middle and saying it can be good or bad, or, or are you a little bit of a skeptic on some of those things? Well, I think there's way too much debt in the world. <laughs> That's, of course, we're, we're all familiar what's happened with them through the COVID period. So how future generations come to pay back this debt is it's highly uncertain. It's one of the big issues for the future. There have been huge tax incentives, of course, for people to raise money through the debt markets. Personally, I think there's been too much of an incentive. I think the world could do with more equity capital. And I think it would be healthier for society if a large number of people were able to access those growth opportunities rather than the few who can get access to the super growth that's not confined to the private markets, but is increasingly found there. So I'm not sure at all the financial system is sort of benefiting the many in the way that it ideally should. So those are sort of, I guess, longer term concerns. What sort of things are you most focused on and perhaps worried about over the next, say, 12 months? And of course, we focus solely there on trends that have happened in the past. And it's, pretty, it's pretty foolish to bet that trends in the past don't continue into the future. But there, there are also a couple of new things which are emerging. One, obviously, it's 
ESG, responsible investing, as we call it, real pen sustainable ownership. And you know, looking at, just take, for example, government's net zero commitments, you know, the amounts of money that's going to be spent between now and 2050, all across the world, this gigantic owners of capital increasingly really want to understand the impact they're investing and how it contributes to or harms society. So in terms of ESGRI, we're probably in the early stages of a multi-decade sort of trend. Potentially clashing with that is another, which is the, the growing importance of China, which is inevitably going to become a greater source of return and diversification. Currently, the Chinese are pursuing very different macroeconomic policies with fiscal and monetary to Western countries. That will almost certainly result in some very large deviations. But sorry, I took you away from your your question about what to worry about. And I think you said over the next 12 months. Well, first of all, I, I try not to worry too much, actually. You've got to play the cards that you're dealt. And then consistently with what we've been talking about during this chat is I try not to think about a 12-month period as much as possible, try and think so further into the future. But when doing so, it's hard not to be concerned about the consequences of the huge sort of monetary and fiscal experiment that's ongoing in the Western world. And it's very hard to know how things will play out. But the historical precedents aren't that encouraging. <laughs> right now, there's some parallels with the late 1960s. That's the time when, you know, due to the Vietnam War, US policymakers eased both fiscal and monetary policies. But they did so to a trivial degree relative to what's happening today. But then it didn't end so well. So I wonder if it can sort of this time around. And I guess that's consistent with my sort of growing scepticism about the benefits of uh, fixed income securities, at least in terms of preserving wealth. And then perhaps as of as a left field sort of thought, I, I think one of the things we take for granted is the ease with which we can move money around the world and to every corner of the world. Well, that, that hasn't always been the case. And I just wonder if we might revert back to a world where the movement of capital becomes a bit more difficult. And one thinks about sort of globalization, it seems to be pausing or even reversing in the markets for labor and the markets for goods. And I don't think it's an outrageous thought to think that might also be the case for capital. If I was a US policymaker looking at the amount of dollars that's being poured into growth companies in China, I might not like that very much. Increasingly, people are talking about wealth taxes. Of course, it's very difficult to impose wealth taxes when the wealthy can simply take their transfer their money elsewhere. So if you're serious about wealth taxes, I would have thought you've got to think about keeping that wealth under your tax jurisdiction. And then in countries like the UK, you know, with large deficits, large twin deficits, you know, in the past, you know, emerging markets with you know, similar types of deficits you know, often imposed some form of capital controls. So I, I'm not saying it's going to happen in the UK I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next 12 months. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. 
But over the next decade, will we have quite as much freedom of capital movement as we've had in the past? Maybe not. And were that to be the case, uh, the investing world would look very different to what it does today. Indeed. It's, it's kind of funny because it sounded like when you were talking about the next 12 months, it sounded like you were super relaxed and chilled out about everything and just like, you know, what will be will be. And then talking <laughs> about the long term, it suddenly sounds like you're an uber pessimist, paranoid kind of. So it's- oh, no, no, no. I'm not pessimist at all. I think there's, there's a lot to be really optimistic about. But you did specifically ask for concerns, Dan. True, we did. We did. We, we led you on a little bit there. <laughs> cool. So, I mean, Richard, it's been such a great conversation, but as we start to wrap up, what's one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from all of this? I think an important takeaway is just how fortunate we are to work in such an interesting area. And in particular, I personally feel it's a great privilege to be able to apply one's trade for you know, a mission-driven business. But you know, this is my first ever podcast. I hope that is not so, so obvious. Uh, but, but frankly, if one person takes one thing away from what's been said, I'll be absolutely delighted. Brilliant. And Richard, just before you go, what's the one thing that you think is most underappreciated about investing? Part of the skill, I believe, is, is trying to keep things simple. But actually, that's not easy. In, in fact, there was a book written with, with that title some years ago by Richard Oldfield, there are just so many incentives and temptations all the time to do the wrong thing. So perhaps I'd say the one thing that's underappreciated is you know, the need to keep investing as simple as one can. Yeah, s- simple but not easy. I love that. Actually, I, I love the point you made in the previous answer. You know, if, if one person can take one thing away from this, I mean, goodness me, that's like that's like one of my principles in life. You know, I get up every morning thinking that's a winner. <laughs> you know, if you get one person that takes one thing away from the day, then I think you're doing really well. It's, 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 I know you hate benchmarks, but in terms of benchmarks, you know, it's not a bad one for life. But anyway, Richard, I mean, you, you mentioned there the Richard Oldfield book. I think you just said simple, not easy. Any other books or podcasts that you'd want to flag to our listeners? Two of my main areas of interest, I think I mentioned earlier, are investing in history. Uh, Nuclear Folly by Sirhai Plochy. It's almost certainly the wrong pronunciation. Uh, that's a gripping account of the Cuban Missile Crisis based on some recently released Russian files. And I hadn't appreciated just how close we were to nuclear war on a few occasions. And it's probably a very good thing that Donald Trump wasn't president in the early 1960s. And then in terms of an investing book, another recent release, which I read very quickly, it was genuinely hard to put down, was Built on a Lie by an FT journalist called Owen Walker. That's all about the rise and fall of Neil Woodford. And it's a very salutary tale. And frankly, no one comes out so looking very good. Investment managers, intermediaries, sort of regulators and it really sort of plays to sort of my motivation to do a good job for our clients which I, I genuinely believe that we do and were we not able to do it at the railways pension scheme you know many of them might be subject to savings vehicles to other savings vehicles which are less optimal for their long-term interests 
Well, that's fascinating. We'll put links to all those in the show notes. Really interesting you bring up that last one. I haven't read Built on a Lie, but we did do a previous episode where we interviewed an author of another book about the Woodford situation called When the Fund Stops. And I agree that the books are unputdownable because they're just so interesting. And you're absolutely right. No one comes out particularly well. Very salutary tale for everyone, investors, consultants, fund researchers, asset managers, everyone. I think we should have a read of it and really try and reflect on it. So Well, a good note to end on, perhaps. Richard, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. That was good fun. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mary. I really enjoyed that. So really interesting one there, wasn't it, Mary? What are you you sort of taking away from that? So I absolutely loved the, I think, one of Richard's first answers. I think it was to do with having an edge which I know you'd sort of picked out as well. And he he gave some really sort of key high level areas. And maybe we'll just touch on a few of those because I thought some of them really resonated. So one of the key ones, of course, is time and being a very long term investor. Now, clearly for an open DB scheme, you absolutely do have a, a hell of a lot of time and, and more so than many of the clients that we advise. Because as soon as you're a closed scheme, obviously time is is narrowing in. But I guess that there were a few features of time that he specifically picked out, weren't there? So One of the ones that I thought was very interesting was with manager arrangements and even with his internal team is actually having a long term horizon and actually giving that sort of almost certainty or at least comfort that you're not going to be sacked based on a quarter worth of of performance. What did you think about that? Yeah, that was the idea of tenure, wasn't it? Yeah, that did resonate with me when he sort of said it. I mean, the long-term point is a really interesting one because I think it gets thrown around an awful lot, doesn't it? That phrase, it's almost bandied around by by everyone. It's like, yeah, we're long-term, we're long-term. And I think you're right. That there's been a shift in the DB pension industry in the UK, hasn't there, where a lot of DB schemes are not really that long-term anymore because they are looking towards maturing and a buyout or, or getting their risk down or whatever. So there is a real difference there now in pension schemes, whether they really are sort of long, long-term investors or not. But that idea of being able to give your managers tenure and then really sort of back them for a long period of time, that that seems pretty powerful to me. And I guess another area which is sort of linked to this is, is making sure that you've got stakeholders aligned and good stakeholders. And I suppose one of them is in terms of time and having stakeholders aligned in, in that longer term horizon. But looking at stakeholders in a slightly different way, I guess the idea of being a good stakeholder or being a good client or, or a good investment opportunity. So there are a couple of things that Richard mentioned. The one that I'd remembered was the willingness to partner with a manager with a very, very short track record. And again, I think where there are lay trustees involved, it can be quite difficult to get the level of comfort on that manager having the right expertise and capability. But you'd picked out a slightly different angle to the sort of being a good partner, hadn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's underappreciated. And I don't hear very many investors saying it, but I do think it's important, the idea of making yourself a good a good client, if you like, making yourself an, an appealing source of capital where people actually want your capital. I think it's people often look at it the other way around, that you're, the capital is what's scarce and the people with the opportunities ought to be sort of queuing up. And increasingly in this world, it's the other way around. It's the, the capacity in the market that's scarce and, and there's a lot of capital chasing it. And so if your capital can be treated differently, people always say that about someone like Warren Buffett, for example, right? That his capital is just treated differently because because of who he is. And and that's a, a way he's he's got higher returns. But I, I think, yeah, large pension schemes as well can can make that work for them. And I think that, especially in private markets, right? And, and again, we could come to something that gets thrown around a lot, which is the illiquidity premium. Yeah, but I have a beer in my bonnet that you can't just go out and get the illiquidity premium. It doesn't work like that. Whereas a lot of people do 
seem to think that's how it works. But that, that's real evidence there, like Richard was saying. If, if you know your capital gets special treatment, you know you're getting something at a lower price than what you might have done. That's the liquidity premium right there sort of thing. So I think thinking hard about how you make that happen, is that really made sense to me as a potential edge. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose slightly linked to that was the key point about being nimble. So whether that's being nimble in being able to move into private markets very quickly and, and therefore being a good investor and a good client, or whether it's just being able to be nimble with de-risking, capturing good, strong performance, that sort of thing. And I know we've we've talked again and again about the importance of being nimble, having frameworks in place and being able to act quickly and doing a pre-mortem, I think was the phrase that we we both quite liked in terms of making decisions ahead of time and therefore being nimble. Yeah. Another point I was going to mention, actually, and came up talking to Richard was just this idea of alignment with the stakeholders. And, and it, God, it sounds so boring, doesn't it, in some ways? Like it sounds something really dull compared with the excitement of markets and investing. But like you said, it's just so important because if your stakeholders do really believe in you, then you are just going to be able to survive through the sort of bumps and periods of underperformance. And I've certainly, in hindsight, been in situations in my career, I've been advising groups of people where there just isn't really alignment. And you either go around in circles on a question or you sort of get fed up very quickly with a strategy that's not doing what you think it will sort of thing and kind of throw it out. And I actually think it's very easy to say, but it's surprisingly rare to get that real full alignment between a board of stakeholders, the exec, and then people actually managing money as well. And you do read that a lot in some of the, the well-known books on investing that is sort of the, the holy grail kind of thing, but that's surprisingly rare, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.